Amid Christmas 1996, a frantic call was placed to 911 from Patsy and John Ramsey's home in Boulder, Colorado, reporting the disappearance of their six-year-old daughter, John Benet. What followed became one of modern history's most infamous and unsolved mysteries. I'm Jelsey May, and this is Exhibit May. It is one of the greatest unsolved crimes in history. We have a kidnapping. There's a ransom note here. A little girl vanishes from home Christmas night. It's just like you got hit in the stomach. Where's my child? Hours later, she's found strangled to death. I couldn't do anything but scream. Keep your babies close to you. John Benet Patricia Ramsey was born to Patsy and John Ramsey on August 6, 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. She thrived as an extrovert, relished in the spotlight, loved dressing up in sparkly outfits, and earned a reputation for her distinctive smile and bouncy blonde hair. Following her mother's footsteps, she quickly ventured into children's beauty pageants, winning numerous titles, notably claiming the Little Miss Colorado Sunburst Crown in 1995. 40-year-old Patsy Ramsey was a former pageant performer winning Miss West Virginia in 1977. Her academic journey led her to West Virginia University where she completed her studies and earned a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism in 1978. Shortly after, in 1980, she tied the knot with her husband John and in 1987, their son Burke was born. Born in Nebraska, 53-year-old John Ramsey commenced his career by joining the Navy in 1966 as a Civil Engineer Corps officer stationed in the Philippines at Atlanta. In 1989, he created the Advanced Product Group, which later merged with other companies to form Access Graphics. Here, he took on the roles of CEO and President, driving the company to generate $1 billion in revenues by 1996. Following John Benet's birth, the family moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1991 due to John's work. Their home located at 755 15th Street was an impressive four-story brick residence spanning 7,000 square feet. It featured five bedrooms, multiple staircases, a separate catering kitchen, a retractable movie screen, and pricey European antiques. They also owned two private jets, a yacht, and a vacation home in Michigan with a net worth of $6.4 million. On Christmas Day, December 25, 1991, the Ramsey family opened presents and celebrated the evening at their friends Fleet and Priscilla White's house nearby. Realizing an early start awaited them the following day, they left early and returned home before 10 p.m., ensuring the kids were tucked in for the night. On December 26th, John and Patsy were up at 5.30 a.m. preparing for their private flight to their second home in Michigan. As John shaved in the bathroom, Patsy began descending downstairs toward the kitchen to prepare coffee. 
As she reached the bottom of the stairs, she encountered an unusually long note on the staircase. A three-page handwritten ransom letter addressed to John that read as follows. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. If you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions in the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attached to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and, hence, an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation from my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. SBTC. Upon discovering the note, Patsy immediately rushed to the children's bedrooms where she found Burke asleep and John Bonet missing. At the sound of his wife's scream, John swiftly leaped into action, scanning the house for his daughter while instructing his wife to dial 911. Take a deep breath, please. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Patsy, Patsy, Patsy. 
At 5.52 a.m., Fred Patterson and Linda Arndt were among the initial detectives who arrived at the scene, where family and friends including Fleet and Priscilla White, Barbara and John Fernie, and their church pastor, Roel Hoverstock, had gathered in the home. He said there's been a kidnapping. It involves a six-year-old girl. There was a ransom note, a two-and-a-half-page ransom note. And according to the ransom note, there was going to be a phone call from the author, and they were supposed to call between 8 and 10 a.m. So I was supposed to get to the house for purposes of monitoring the phone call. The officers noted no evidence of a struggle within the house, no indications of forced entry, and no footprints in the snow around the premises, suggesting no signs of a potential intruder. Yet believing it to be a kidnapping, the police taped off John Bonet's bedroom but neglected to seal off the rest of the house, resulting in its contamination as visitors cooked, tidied, and cleaned surfaces in the kitchen. Hours ticked by while everyone anxiously waited further instructions from the kidnapper. While the deadline passed without any effort to claim the money John had secured, suspicion grew among the investigators. 10 o'clock comes and goes and there's no acknowledgement within the house from anyone that the deadline imposed by the author of the ransom note has come and gone. Around 1 p.m., Detective Arndt was a sole remaining detective on the scene and requested John and Fleet to search the house for anything unusual. As instructed, they approached a latched door, turned on the light, and headed down the basement, which contained several small rooms. Upon reaching the foot of the stairs, a new train set was assembled on a table occupying its designated play area where the children often spent time. Additionally, the space doubled as a storage area holding old paint cans, art supplies, and decorations. Continuing a few more steps, they reached a windowless room used as a wine cellar. Switching on another light, they discovered John Benet's lifeless body lying on the floor wrapped in a white blanket. Her head was turned to the right, with her arms extended above her head. A nylon cord was wound around her neck while another piece was loosely tied around her wrist and her mouth was covered with duct tape. She was dressed in a long-sleeved white-knit shirt with a sequin decorated silver star in the front, long white pajama pants and underwear, and her long blonde hair was gathered with blue hair ties and two ponytails, one on the top of her head and another at the back. John swiftly dropped to his knees beside his daughter and touched her cheek before removing the tape from her mouth. Despite his efforts to untangle the cord restraining her arms, he struggled to release her. He then proceeded to transport John Bonet's body upstairs, laid her on the floor in front of the Christmas tree, and covered her with a blanket and Colorado Avalanche hockey sweatshirt. And I see John Ramsey carrying John Bonet up the last three steps from the basement. And, um, and my mind exploded. And everything that I had noted that morning that stuck out instantly made sense. And JonBenet was clearly dead. Then she's been dead for a while. I ordered him to put JonBenet down. I knelt next to her and I leaned down to her face. And John leaned down opposite me. And um, his face was just inches from mine. And we had a nonverbal exchanged that I will never forget. And he asked if she was dead. And I said, yes, she's dead. And as we looked at each other, I remember, and I wore a shoulder holster, tucking my gun right next to me 
and consciously counting, I've got 18 bullets. Because I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. I heard a wail, just a guttural moan, aching wail from the back area. It's probably one of the most pitiful things I've ever heard and anguished. And I saw the rest of the people, the Patsy and the pastor and the four friends come from the den towards the living room. So I said, if you want to say goodbye to Jean Bonnet, this is the only time you'll have to do it. I heard John scream, just kind of this guttural, deep scream. I didn't know what to think. I was in the, our little den with a couple of our friends, and uh, Fleet White came running in and dialed 911. He said, we need an ambulance. And I jumped up and said, what is it, what is it? And they held me back and wouldn't let me wouldn't let me go. Kept saying, we don't know, I don't know what's the problem, you know, just, and I was fighting and trying to get loose and to go see what was the problem. <clears throat> I went into, um, into the living room and uh, John was standing there with Linda Arndt and Jean Benet was lying on the floor and he said that she was dead. At 10.45 p.m., John Bonet's body was removed from the house. I hadn't seen savagery to, done to a child or even an adult until uh, the doctor peeled back her scalp and uh, saw that horrific fracture to her head. It was the length of her head. It was revealed that John Bonet's cause of death was ligature strangulation and an 8.5 inch skull fracture by an unknown object. Additionally, she had several abrasions on her neck, cheek, legs, and the vaginal area, along with the presence of urine and blood on her underwear. Coroner John Mayer also noted that the child's pubic area had been wiped clean with a cloth. She had trauma to her vagina. It would be trauma that would be consistent with uh, injuries seen in sexual assault cases. What was seen was not a first-time injury. Four days later, John delivered a heartfelt tribute at his daughter's memorial service in Boulder. Following the service, the Ramses flew John Bonet's body back to Atlanta, where she was laid to rest beside her half sister, Elizabeth Ramsey. Elizabeth, from John's previous marriage, had sadly lost her life in a tragic car accident at the age of 22, five years earlier. John Bonet was buried in one of her pageant outfits, a rhinestone tiara, and accompanied by a cherished teddy bear. After the funeral, the Ramsey spent five days with Patsy's parents in Roswell before retreating to Boulder for seclusion. Tonight, for the first time, we hear from the Boulder police chief. We also hear from Jean Benet's parents, excerpts from the only interview they've given since the killing of their daughter. On January 1st, 1997, John and Patsy made their first public comment on the case and pleaded on CNN for help finding their daughter's killer. I didn't, um... I couldn't read the whole thing. I I just gotten up. We were on our, it was the day after Christmas and we were going to go visiting. And it was 
quite early in the morning and I'd gotten dressed and was on my way to the kitchen to make some coffee. And we have a back staircase from the bedroom areas. And I always come down that staircase and I'm usually the first one down. And the note was lying across the three pages across the run of one of the stair treads. And it was kind of dimly lit because it was very early in the morning. And I started to read it, and it was addressed to John. It said, Mr. Ramsey. And it said, we have your daughter. And I, you know, it just was, it just wasn't registering. And I, I may have gotten through another sentence, like, like, we have your daughter. And I, I don't know if I got any further than that. And I immediately ran back upstairs and pushed open her door and she was not in her bed. And I screamed for John. During the interview, broadcast viewers observed Patsy displaying emotional responses while John appeared unemotional. The police accused the Ramses of behaving strangely, noting their unusual demeanor for parents who had just lost their child to murder. I've lost two children. And for someone to tell me that I didn't act right, uh, I don't accept. Uh, when they asked us to come to the police station. We said, you know, yeah, we want to keep working with you, but can't you come here? We can't go out. Patsy was in bed. Patsy was barely able to move. And all we asked was they come to come here. They said, well, no, we have paperwork at the police station we might need to get a hold of. We were perfectly willing and anxious to work with the police to find the killer. We had a higher priority at that point, and that was to bury our daughter. He said, if I were to ask you to take a lie detector test, what would you say? And I said, I would be offended. That's what I would say. I wasn't interested in proving my innocence at that point. That, that we was were a non-issue. There's a murderer loose. In the following weeks, further clues intensified suspicions surrounding Patsy as a garrote made from a paintbrush used to strangle John Bonet was discovered among her painting supplies. At that point, a handwriting analysis had also excluded John as the author of the ransom note, but Patsy had not been ruled out. Detectives noted that the ransom note had been written on pages torn from Patsy's notepad and that an initial attempt at a ransom note had been discarded, raising suspicion of a prior practice note. Oh, I think I gave five or six handwriting samples. They were extensive. We wrote and rewrote this note. Right-handed, left-handed, with different pens, different angles. When when the test was administered, they would they would uh, verbally dictate what I was to write, and it was rather fast. You know, so you didn't have time, I guess, to you know try to think about how you were making your letters. You just had to write as you always write to keep up. With the couple declining cooperation, authorities built a case against them with evidence revealed in the autopsy. John Bonet had suffered sexual abuse and rumors circulated implicating John as a perpetrator. 
DNA test was done um, on evidence that was found underneath JonBenet's fingernails and from her clothes, and it proved that it was not a match for any of the family members of John Bonet or others close to the family. The findings were given to a Boulder detective who did not share that with prosecutors for months. Forensic investigators eventually obtained enough material from a mixed blood sample discovered on John Bonet's underwear to create a DNA profile. This DNA profile belonged to an unidentified male and didn't match the DNA of any member of the Ramsey family. Despite submitting the DNA to the FBI's CODIS, a database housing over 6.1 million DNA profiles, no match was found. While the Ramseys weren't a match, detectives still zeroed in on Patsy with several theories. They speculated that she might have unintentionally caused JonBenet's death with John assisting to cover up the truth. Investigators theorized that JonBenet's significant issues with bedwetting could have led Patsy to reach a breaking point that night due to the persistent problem. It was not an issue. I mean, I've said this before, all children have accidents. If she was especially tired when she went to bed and didn't go to the bathroom before she went to bed, she could have had an accident, you know. It was few and far between. It was not a big deal. All four of our other children had similar experiences. You know, that was made much too much of something it's of nonsense. nothing. Absolute nonsense. I mean, I didn't keep track, you know. Not enough to be alarmed enough to even speak to a doctor about it. During the autopsy, another intriguing revelation emerged. Fragmented fruit material was discovered in JonBenet's small intestine, hinting at the possible consumption of fruit a few hours before her death. Images captured on the day her body was found showed a bowl of pineapple with a spoon on the kitchen table. Yet neither John nor Patsy remembered placing the bowl there or feeding pineapple to their daughter. Well, I've not specifically read the autopsy report, but it is my understanding that they are not definitive about whether the substance in her digestive system was pineapple or not. All I'm saying is that I did not feed her pineapple when we returned home from the White's house. She was sound asleep. She was put in her bed and tucked in good night. And we don't know if that's significant or not. All we know is what we've told the police and that is that either Patsy or I gave JonBenet pineapple when we got home that night. Had we been trying to hide something, it would be very easy for us to say, oh yeah, I remember I gave her a pineapple before she went to bed. Next question. But that's not what happened. However, the police noted finding fingerprints of both Patsy and Burke on the bowl. Based on that evidence, the police formulated another theory. They pondered whether John Bonet had possibly came to the kitchen and retrieved the pineapple, and if Patsy had an emotional breakdown leading to subsequent actions to cover up what had occurred. Three months after the murder, the police were no closer to an arrest, which led the district attorney to make a bold move by bringing in veteran homicide detective Lou Smith. Initially suspecting the Ramseys, Smith's investigation revealed troubling details that redirected suspicion elsewhere, marking a significant shift in the case. He uncovered evidence of the crime scene that seemed to divert attention from the Ramseys toward a potential intruder. 
One crucial detail was an open, broken basement window, an aspect initially dismissed by the police, who argued it was too small for an adult to enter. Disagreeing, Smith demonstrated it was plausible to maneuver through the window. He also pointed out a suitcase positioned below the window with a small piece of glass likely from the intruder's footwear. Furthermore, a distinct scuff mark trailed down the wall, accompanied by debris and leaves directly beneath the window. I have strong reason to believe that the killer either entered or left the house through the uh, basement window that we found open, and we found a hard Samsonite suitcase flush up against the wall as if it were a step to get out of the window. The window was probably five feet off the floor, so he had to step on something to get out. Um, that's my best guess at how at least they got out. They would have need, needed the suitcase to get out of that window. I think that when we left in the late afternoon to go to the Whites for dinner, that possibly this person was watching our house, watched us leave, and came into the house at that time. So there were several, it was a window of several hours of time where he could have familiarized himself with the house, where Jean Benet's bedroom was, where our bedroom was where the basement was, you know, before we returned home. I believe that the ransom note was probably very likely written at that time. We had paper and pens all over the place, so they were available. And then I think the person was there when we returned home that night. Look, this person is a monster. It's a subhuman. This person doesn't think like you and I do. This person is not gonna make sense. Despite Smith's evidence favoring an intruder scenario, the police deemed his findings insufficient. They persisted in implicating the Ramses, citing undisturbed cobwebs on the window and the lack of footprints as evidence against Smith's intruder theory. I think it said no footprints in the snow. And we have seen photographs that were taken the morning of the 26th. By the police. By the police of each of the door entries and around the house. And there was no snow. Urban myth. Later, John informed the police that he considered a man dressed as Santa Claus a viable suspect. This man was Bill McReynolds, who shared a special bond with John Benet as she worshipped him as Santa Claus. Rollinsville, west of Boulder, a place where residents Bill and Janet McReynolds are known as Santa and Mrs. Claus. Merry Christmas! They had been at the Ramsey home two nights before the murder of six-year-old John Benet, entertaining at a Christmas party. Police recently realized some strange parallels. One of the McReynolds daughters and a friend of hers were abducted in Longmont in 1974. The McReynolds girl witnessed her friend's molestation, but nobody was ever arrested. It happened on December 26th, 22 years to the day before Jean Benet's body was discovered in the basement of the Ramsey family home. And Janet McReynolds wrote a play in 1976 called Hey Rue. It was about the sexual assault, torture, and murder of a girl. The child's body was found in a basement. At first, this seemed a promising lead, but after extensive DNA and handwriting samples, Bill and his wife were completely cleared of any suspicion. John had also identified his housekeeper and her husband as individuals of interest. 
Linda Hoffman Pugh had been working for the Ramseys for some time and right before Christmas had asked to borrow $2,000 from Patsy. The police searched the housekeeper's residence and found potential evidence, including a roll of duct tape and cord that could have linked the couple to John Bonet. Nevertheless, their alibis checked out and both DNA and handwriting analysis didn't align, clearing them of any involvement in the case. As time passed, rumors began circulating that JonBenet's older brother Burke might have been involved in her death due to a possible jealous outburst. Evidence discovered at the crime scene revealed his feces smeared on a box of candy gifted to JonBenet for Christmas. The Ramsey's housekeeper also described discovering fecal matter the size of a grapefruit in JonBenet's bed, which she believed was left by Burke. Fueling the speculation surrounding the young boy, new reports surfaced about the 911 call placed by his mother. The Ramseys claimed that their son had slept through the incident, but when detectives enhanced the 911 audio, there were a few extra seconds after Patsy thought she had disconnected the call. Some insisted they heard a third voice in the background, supposedly Burks asking, What did you say? Well, we have not heard the 911 tape, but we understand from people who have heard it that it sounds like a bunch of chipmunks chattering and that it is almost unintelligible. All we know is that Burke did not come downstairs that morning, nor did we say to him, you know, go back or whatever it is they say that it's said on the 911 tape. I phoned the police, called 911 from the kitchen telephone, wall phone, hung up, dialed one set of our friends hung up and dialed another set of friends and asked them to come quickly to help. Again, if, if we want, if we were trying to hide something, we'd say, oh yeah, I remember, Burke did get up and, and I told him to go back to bed. Next question. But the fact of the matter is, that didn't happen. They're grasping at straws instead of trying to get down to brass tacks and find this killer. The Ramseys challenged the police to release the audio to the public, but they never did. To this day, whatever was present at the end of the 911 call remains a mystery. Burke had never publicly spoken about his sister, but on the 20th anniversary of her death, he had his first ever interview with TV's Dr. Phil. During this interview, he appeared nervous while awkwardly smiling the entire time. He maintained his innocence and stated that the killer was probably a pedophile among the pageant audience. This morning, a pivotal milestone in the nearly two-decade-old John Bonet Ramsey mystery is no longer secret. A grand jury's 1999 criminal indictment against her parents, now public after local reporter Charlie Brennan sued to have it released. I felt it was very important, I still feel it's very important that that secrecy be removed and that the people now can look and see what happened and make decisions for themselves whether they believe it was right or wrong. In 1999, the grand jury issued a true bill to charge the Ramseys for endangering a child's life and obstructing a murder investigation. During a confidential 13-month period, jurors heard testimonies covering every aspect of the case, excluding testimonies from John and Patsy. In the end, the jurors voted to charge the couple and recommended indicting the parents for child abuse, resulting in death and accessory to first-degree murder. However, Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter chose not to prosecute them. 
The documents reveal a grand jury voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey for child abuse resulting in death and being accessories to a crime. But in an unusual move, the DA back then decided not to prosecute. We do not have sufficient evidence to warrant the filing of charges against anyone who has been investigated at this time. A decade after the murder, tragedy struck the family again as Patsy died after a long battle with ovarian cancer and was laid to rest beside John Binet. Mere weeks after Patsy's passing, a significant breakthrough occurred in the case. The arrest of 41-year-old John Mark Carr. In a bizarre twist, while he was being paraded before cameras, Carr actually responded to reporters' questions, admitting that he killed John Binet Ramsey. A 41-year-old teacher in Thailand by the name of John Mark Carr was arrested for the murder of John Binet following a sudden confession. Yet no match was found when Carr's DNA was compared to the DNA found on her underwear. After two weeks of drama and false hope, it became evident that John Mark Carr was not the killer. Instead, he seemed to be an unstable individual who took advantage of an opportunity for a free ride back from Thailand at the state's expense. Following this, the case stalled once again until 2008 when John Bonet was back in the headlines. New technology helped exonerate the Ramsey family. Touch DNA analysis found the DNA of an unidentified male on Jean Bonet's long johns. It matched DNA that was found earlier on her clothing. New touch DNA evidence was discovered by speculating where the killer might have handled her pajama bottoms. Forensic scientist Angela Williamson led the work and tested DNA on both sides of the waistband, confirming that it matched the DNA found on the underwear. Tests over a decade apart unveiled the presence of the same unknown male DNA on two pieces of John Bonet's clothing. This resulted in one of the most controversial moments in the case a letter of apology to the Ramseys from the Boulder District Attorney. They didn't do it. That's what John Ramsey has been waiting nearly 12 years to hear, and he heard it today. Boulder District Attorney Mary Lacey sent a letter to Ramsey exonerating him and his immediate family in the murder of John Bonet in 1996. Lacey also apologized to the Ramsey family for the scrutiny they were under during the investigation. The case hit another halt until the summer of 2023 when Gary Olivia, a convicted pedophile serving a 10-year term in a Colorado prison for child pornography, confessed in letters that he accidentally caused the death of John Benet Ramsey. The story involving Gary kind of begins on the 27th of uh, December 1996 um, when he was reported to Boulder Police um, because basically the night before, He'd called an old high school friend uh, back in California who um, he, he said through tears and it could barely catch his breath, I've just hurt a little girl. So this was on the night that John Bonet's body was, uh, sorry, a few hours after uh, John Bonet's body was found on December 26th. He was crying that he'd hurt a little girl in Boulder and he hung up the phone. Uh, now his friend that was on the other end of the phone uh, wasn't, didn't know really what to make of that call, was obviously concerned, but couldn't get any information out of him. It wasn't until the next day that uh, he went on the front porch, picked up the newspaper, and saw the news that a, a six-year-old girl had been killed in, in Boulder, Colorado. He immediately calls the Boulder Police Department, uh, reports the call from the day before, um, and then three months pass, he doesn't hear anything, uh, and he calls the tip line again, reports it to Boulder Police, doesn't hear anything again. Fast forward 19 years later, um, Gary Olive is in prison 
uh, for child uh, pornography offences and confesses in a series of letters to the same person that he called that night, uh, claiming to have killed John Bonet by accident. This guy was living, uh, or sorry, was associated with a property about 14, sorry, 13 houses away. He was getting his mail from a church, 13 houses away from the, from the Ramsey family. Um, and the tip, like I said, wasn't followed up upon immediately by Boulder Police at the time. They were zeroing on either Patsy or John Ramsey being uh, responsible for John Bonet's death. It wasn't actually until four years later when he was arrested on the campus of um, the University of Colorado in Boulder uh, with pictures of John Bonet in his bag, a poem that he'd written to John Bonet. Uh, called Ode to John Bonet, and he was also found with a stun gun, and that was kind of a crucial development for investigators because um, over the course of their investigation, after the first few months, they kind of theorised that perhaps that she was subdued with the stun gun um, prior to her death. So, yeah, so the confession letters were were uh, written in and around 2019. There's there's roughly a dozen of them. Um, one of them I can I can read you here. I've got it written uh, written down below me here. It says. Uh, uh, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half and I watched her die. It was an accident, please believe me. Handwriting experts identified striking resemblances between Gary's writing and the ransom note, concluding that he was the probable author. The report indicated a similarity score of 1.75 on a scale of 1 to 5, with one representing an exact match to the ransom note. However, despite this evidence, no arrests have been made. Despite the unsolved nature of John Bonet's case, John Ramsey remains steadfast in pursuing justice for his daughter. Living a quiet life now, he holds on to hope that one day the real truth will come to light, bringing closure and peace to John Bonet and their family. I miss her butterfly kisses. She used to come up and give me a little brush with her eyelashes on my cheek and her little hugs and her spontaneity. She was a spark plug in our life. She, she kept the place rocking. It's, it's a huge vacuum in our family, all of our family. If you have any idea, no matter how far-fetched it is, call us, email us, write us, call the police, it call Crime Stoppers, call your local police. Somebody knows who did this. If you have any information about this investigation, please contact Boulder's Most Wanted tip line at 303-441-1974 or Northern Colorado Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.